So hi. <laughs> Bet you weren't expecting to see me up here again. Um, <laughs> and if it makes you feel better, neither was I. So there you go. <laughs> you know, last week I did mention that when the calendar flipped to January, that uh, all the problems weren't going to go away. And uh, here we are. So we're off to a great start for 2021, aren't we? <laughs> You know, this continues to be uh, the season of the last minute, the unexpected, this test of our flexibility and our adaptability. Uh, You know, sometimes I I feel like I have been a gymnast, uh, just, and and I don't, I'm I'm not a gymnast. Um, And so you reach a point where you're like, I'm tired of trying to just adapt and be flexible. Um, you know, I know that uh, at the church we've been feeling this because of, uh, you know, changing regulations, uh, having to, to just adapt everything we do, and I know that you're doing the same thing too, at your place of work, at home, with your kids. You know, it, it's draining in ways that if you had told me this is what we were going to be facing, I, I wouldn't have imagined that it would be as exhausting as it is. Um, and, and I know that you probably feel the same way. Uh, my hope is that this is the most difficult season that we will ever face. Uh, it, at very least, it will be one of the most difficult seasons that any of us will ever face. And it can be discouraging, can't it? It, it can be very discouraging. There is a lot to be discouraged about right now. Constant changes, the loss that we've experienced, things that should have happened that didn't happen, uh, the uncertainty of everything, it can really strip us of our courage, can't it? You know, that, that's the idea of being discouraged, is that our courage is actually removed and taken away from us. And so it, it can be hard to remain standing when the storm is tossing the boat around, right? Uh, it can be difficult to keep on our feet. You know, I, I, I think that for me, the, the thought of returning to normal feels kind of far away, and that can be discouraging. Uh, part of me also feels that the light's at the end of the tunnel, and then there's a part of me that feels like that could be an oncoming train, and it makes me a little nervous. But <laughs> how do we deal with discouragement? How do we deal with that? You know, this morning, I, I want to take a look at one of my favorite people from the Bible. And I know that, uh, you know, when I was looking at doing this, I found out that, uh, that our church family had, had been through the book of Nehemiah a couple years ago, but I wasn't here for that, so we're just going to do it again. So there now. Um, <laughs> turn with me, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah. If you brought your Bible with you, if not, it will be on the screen when we get there. Uh, if you're looking for Nehemiah, you're going to find it in the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, you'll find it, uh, if you look in the middle of your Bible and open up to Psalms, move to the left a couple of books, and uh, you will find Nehemiah. And we're going to be in chapter 4 together this morning. So like I said, this is actually one of my favorite characters in the Bible, one of my favorite sections of it. Uh, here's a guy who, kind of like Daniel, we talked about him last year, uh, just a couple months ago, and um, you know, kind of like Nehemiah, or kind of like Daniel, Nehemiah found himself in a position serving a foreign king. You know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, and that may not seem like a huge deal, but if you were the king, having a reliable cupbearer cup was a huge deal. You had to trust this guy to serve you your food. He would taste it and make sure it wasn't poisoned. You know, if you're the king, you've got enemies who want to you out. So your cupbearer had to be very reliable. You know, it's, it's also uh, a lot of ancient uh, historians 
believe that the cupbearer may have been more than that as well, that the cupbearer may have also been a sort of informal advisor or confidant to the king. You know, he had close access to the king, so that makes sense. But either way, Nehemiah had to be a trustworthy, reliable guy, and so the, him being in this position of cupbearer was a big deal. So as he's serving the king, Nehemiah receives word that Jerusalem, his, uh, the home of his people, his ancestral home, was in devastation. The city laid in ruin, its wall was collapsed, uh, and again, if you look at ancient history, not having a wall around your city meant that anyone who wanted to could come in and take and steal and, and just pick on the people there. So all these opportunistic thieves and raiders would come in and pillage and do whatever they wanted to in the city. So Nehemiah finds this out, and he is distressed at the news, and so he, he begins to pray and fast and ask God what he can do about this problem. Nehemiah does this for four months until his opportunity finally comes. Nehemiah is serving food and drink to the king at a party, um, and you can imagine he had been fasting for four months, so he was probably looking a little gaunt, a little unwell, uh, and so uh, he, he goes to the king and serves him food, and the king says, are you all right? You look unwell. What's, what's wrong? You're at a party. You know, you're, you're, you're down in the mouth at this, at this celebration. Now, Nehemiah gets nervous for two reasons. One, he realizes his opportunities finally come, and two, being a Debbie Downer at the king's party could have meant the separation of your head from your body. So, Nehemiah is getting a little nervous, <laughs> but Nehemiah takes the opportunity. He's faithful to his calling, and uh, he tells the king what's going on. I found out my ancestral home, the home of my fathers, is in devastation, and I want to do something about it. The king says, okay, what's your plan? What, what do you need? So, Nehemiah negotiates a leave of absence from his duties as cupbearer. The king uh, liked his cupbearer and wanted him to come back eventually, so he negotiates a time when he's going to be gone. And, uh, and then Nehemiah, in addition, requests uh, permission from the king, in a sense, his building permits, so that he can go and build in Jerusalem. And then he also requests the resources that he needs in order to go and to rebuild the, the gates in the city. Um, so he gets all of these pieces in place, and uh, he shows up in Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, before he tells the people why he's there, he surveys everything, makes sure that he has a plan, and then he goes to the people and says, God is with me. He's given me favor with the king. It's time for us to take this building project on. We need to build the walls around the city. And so in Nehemiah 2.18, the people say, let us rise up and build. And so they, they begin this work of building the wall. Now, have you ever done any masonry work? Uh, I imagine most of us in here probably have not. Uh, I've taken on some tiling projects and some things in the past, but uh, one of the things that I've had the pleasure of working with is, is this stuff that's called stucco. Uh, until I moved to the desert southwest, I had no idea what stucco was. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with it, because I sure wasn't, uh, stucco is a common way of finishing the outside of a building. Uh, you'll see a picture up there. This, is, this was the little stucco project that I took on that didn't turn out to be so little because I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure none of you guys have ever been there before, right? <laughs> so with stucco, you screw a special mesh that's similar to a chicken wire on the outside of the building, and uh, you take a couple layers of this special cement, and you begin to smear it into this chicken wire mesh stuff. 
And uh, when you're done with it, the final layer is tinted, and you get that quintessential Southwest look on the side of your building. It's actually, I mean, the people who are professionals at this stuff, they make it look incredibly easy. They don't have any waste. Uh, they, they get this on the side of the building and texture it, and, and it's, it's a work of art. I mean, it's, it's really pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, for, for me, I'm not a pro, and so it wasn't so easy for me. <laughs> if you've ever worked with chicken wire, it's not much fun. And it kind of pokes you, and it never goes where you want it to go, and so it's kind of, it just, it's no fun to mess with. Uh, mixing cement, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't do it all the time, uh, you can mix it to where it's too stiff or it's too loose. In my case, it was too loose, and you know, when you're trying to take something and apply it to a vertical surface, and it's too loose, what happens? It just goes right all over your shoes. And so you know, what's supposed to be on the wall is at your feet, and it's, it's a frustrating adventure. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. <laughs> so laying stones and building a wall, that's messy, hard work. But it's difficult. Nehemiah 3, if you walk through it, there's a whole bunch of names and a whole bunch of these people were here doing this thing, and it's pretty easy to gloss over it. But one of the things that we learn from Nehemiah chapter 3 is that these were not stonemasons that were working on the building, or on the building of the wall. These were, uh, if you go through some of the professions it mentions, were uh, perfumers, goldsmiths, merchants, even the priests. Now, I imagine that there were some stonemasons in that mix, but these were just kind of regular people like you and me. And now they're taking on this task of building this wall around the city. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? That sounds like a blast. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the workers begin to get discouraged. And on top of that, Jerusalem's neighbors were not excited about them taking on this building project. They had no interest in their enemies rebuilding and becoming stronger. If you go back to the book of Ezra in, in chapter 4 and look at that, uh, you see that there were previous efforts to stop the rebuilding in Jerusalem, and that those efforts were very successful. Uh, they made a petition to the king saying, oh, if you look at Jerusalem's history, you'll see that this is a rebellious city, and uh, we, we would not want the king to have to put up with such a rebellious city. So uh, we recommend that you, you allow us, your servants, to come in and stop these people from building. And the king said, yeah, sounds like a good idea. So they came in and stopped the people from building at that time, which led to Nehemiah having to take action and come in and, and lead this project. So there were two guys in particular, uh, some of the leaders of these groups, uh, named Sanballat and Tobiah. These two guys led this movement to try and stop people from building. And so uh, when Nehemiah begins the work in Jerusalem, they, they go to Nehemiah and make some comments about, oh, are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah basically says, it's none of your business, you have no right or place here, go away. And so he kind of shoots them down initially. Well, in Nehemiah 4.6, we realize that the wall was connected and it's half its height, which is a pretty big deal. So at that point, Sanballat and Tobiah realize, Ooh, we've got to escalate this thing. We don't want them to finish this project. They already have the wall at half of its height and it's connected all the way around. We need to do something about this. They can't finish this project. So they opt for intimidation. They begin to mock the people as they work. They call them feeble. You drag ruined stones from out of the trash to rebuild this wall? Oh, that's going to work, isn't it? A fox walking along the top is just going to make this whole thing fall down on itself. What a worthless piece of work. This is just, you're never going to finish this. And then it escalates into threats. 
Sambalat, Tobiah, and their allies begin plotting against the workers and spreading rumors. Can you imagine trying to do the hard work of building this wall and at the same time being worried about someone sneaking in and shanking you in the back? This is a big deal. This is, this is a scary thing. So the workers, between their hard labor and the threats for their safety, they were discouraged. They began to question what they were doing. Uh, look at Nehemiah 4, verses 10 through 12, and those will be up on the screen here for you. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, and there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Well, I kind of get depressed just reading that, don't you? That's kind of sad. This last part that says you must return to us can also be translated as wherever you turn, they will come to attack us. So these workers are working, and this is the thing that's going through their mind. They're all around us. They're going to come attack us. This is hard work. Uh, one commentator even believes that this was, was a sort of lament, a song of sadness that the workers were singing as they worked. Well, that's just a, you know, that's just a bucket of fun, isn't it? <laughs> so we're working on this wall, we're afraid of these people, and we're just going to kind of sing about it. And uh, I mean, it kind of makes me think about, you know, listening, uh, listening to some Simon and Garfunkel in a dark room. You know, hello darkness, my old friend. Throw some Radiohead on there. I mean, this is, these guys are sitting in the dark room listening to this sad music, and they're discouraged. <laughs> so the work was hard, and the enemy's psychological warfare was effective. And the first time I read through this passage, when I was younger and not as familiar with the text, I think I, I kind of had this idea that they were just being whiny. You know, somebody called the ambulance. These guys are just complaining about this job. But when you dig in and you realize what was going on, you, you begin to see that they had good reason to be discouraged. It was hard work, and they were concerned for their lives. And at this point, they had been working on it for a couple of weeks, and I think that if I was them, I would be ready to quit too. You know, I, I was built to do this other job, and now here I am laying stone in a wall, and I'm afraid these people are going to kill me. Why am I continuing to do this? You know, I think that we also have had good reason to be discouraged in the last 12 months. Don't you? You know, everything has been completely reimagined about your job, or maybe you lost your job. We've all had to learn new technology, and we've all had to endure online meetings. I mean, there's even a word for Zoom fatigue now. Who'd have thought that was going to be a thing? We all had to, to be isolated for Christmas. You know, that's discouraging, isn't it? That's disappointing. We're concerned for our safety and the safety of our families. And it's in even, this isn't even a threat we can stave off with a wall. This is something you can't even see. How are we supposed to fight something we can't see? And I think you probably know this, but I think it's important to mention it, that, that our kids and our teens have been feeling this every bit as much as us adults. I think sometimes we, we think that they're, they're resilient and immune to some of that, and that's true to an extent. But, you know, thinking about last year, the senior class last year had a nuke dropped on the end of their school year. I mean, imagine having to, to skip prom, graduation, sports. You know, oh, I was going to be the captain of the team. Well, now the, it's gone. You know, I was going to get a scholarship for this, and now it's gone. Can you imagine having to do kindergarten online? Well, some of you can because you've been doing it with your kids. <laughs> wow, talk about discouraging. 
My daughter, Lindy, keeps telling me that she wants to have a bonfire of masks when we're on the other side of this thing. That's beginning to sound like a really good idea. <laughs> you know, we are surrounded by rubble, just like the workers here in Nehemiah. And I think it's easy for us to fixate on that rubble. I think it's easy for us to lose sight of everything in, in this rubble, the things we've lost, the things we've had to change, the way it used to be, what should have been, what could have been, what was canceled. It's hard, isn't it? It's tough. And we have every reason to be discouraged. But we don't want to stay there, do we? We don't want to stay there. We don't want to live in a constant state of discouragement. So how do we deal with that discouragement? Well, let's see what Nehemiah does. Let's go back to our text. How does Nehemiah respond when he's faced with the people's discouragement? Look at Nehemiah 4, 13 and 14. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah realizes he's facing multiple threats and he has to do something. If the workers give in to their discouragement, that wall is never going to be finished. And imagine a half-built wall around your city. This would be a monument to failure. The external threat from his enemies was a real concern. You know, the people were singing sad songs about it, but this was a really big deal. The people weren't going to be able to focus on the task at hand if they were concerned about attack. And the threat of attack made the completion of the wall that much more important. So without a wall, the people would continue to be harassed by their enemies. And even though they'd be tempted to give up at this point, that the completion of that wall would help prevent this problem in the future. This was a pivotal moment for Nehemiah's project. So how does he respond? Well, we see that he takes action against the exterior threat. Verse 6 tells us that the wall had been joined together at half its height, like we said before, so even though the wall was beginning to take shape, there were still places that could be easily breached where people could just vault the wall and jump in. So Nehemiah places guards armed at these lower points in the wall so that people would have a harder time sneaking in and so that they would know if an armed force was approaching the wall. So these guards were going to be vigilant against that. And in addition, Nehemiah addresses the people. He reminds the people what they're working for, their families, their homes, and most importantly, the Lord who is great and awesome. You notice something here. Nehemiah doesn't dismiss the workers' complaints. He doesn't reprimand the people. He doesn't punish them. He just reminds them what it's all about and reminds them that God is on their side. And between the Lord's blessing and Nehemiah's faithfulness to the task given to him, we see that the work continues. In verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So the rest of chapter 4 tells us that the people remained vigilant. Uh, Nehemiah, in addition to what he did here, he also develops a warning system. He has a trumpeter with him, and in the event of an attack, the trumpeter would sound at that portion of the wall, and the people would rally to that point of the wall. So he develops this kind of early warning system. And in addition, the people kept their swords strapped to their side while they worked, some of them even having a trowel in one hand and their sword in the other. And so the people carried on with their work. The people were able to continue and to face this project. 
And you may remember the rest of the story. Nehemiah had to deal with some more things that popped up, but in the end, the wall was completed in record time, 52 days. I mean, even by modern standards, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? In the end, the people saw their task through to completion. They resettled Jerusalem, and thanks to Ezra's reading of the law, the people begin to turn their hearts back to God. The hard work, the threats, having to completely upend their lives and focus on that task, it all paid off in the end. So I think we can learn a lot from Nehemiah about discouragement. I think it's true for discouragement in general, but, but I think that there's, there's a similarity between Nehemiah and his workers and us now that, that's a little extra special during this time. You know, Nehemiah and his workers had to completely commit themselves to the task of building the wall. Their entire lives were upended to focus on that task. And I think we're in the same boat. All of us have had to completely adapt everything that we do to address this COVID situation. We've all had to reorient and, and, and completely reshape what we do. So what can we learn from Nehemiah and his motley crew of amateur bricklayers? How can we learn from them? One thing that, that I noticed from this is don't dismiss people's complaints, fears, and concerns, including your own. Like I said earlier, Nehemiah didn't rebuke the people for their concerns. He doesn't give them some kind of platitude. That's oh, not that hard. Other people have it harder. It could be worse. You know, now it's certainly true in our situation, it is certainly true that there are others who do have it worse, isn't it? There are others who are, are in more crisis than we are, but that doesn't make your struggle any less difficult. Just because someone else is going through a harder time doesn't mean that you're not going through a difficult time. Now, we do want to, we don't want to be blind to other people's struggles, and we want to be able to help those who are in crisis but we need to listen to, to others. We also need to find those who will listen to us as well. Find your own Nehemiah. Find someone who will hear you out, but who will also challenge you to do something about it. Nehemiah also does something else here. Nehemiah takes action to change what he can actually change. And so we should do the same thing. Nehemiah was faced with a real, tangible threat that he could respond to. He took action to deal with the problem. The people had a legitimate concern about uh, their enemies sneaking in and causing them harm, and so Nehemiah stations armed guards, right? He actually addresses the problem. So if you experience discouragement about something tangible, do something about it. Actually take action. Make adjustments. You know, I think in addition to that, it's important for us to, to watch out for the things that, that can be the first things to go when we do face discouragement. And, and particularly if you experience depression in addition to discouragement, there are some things that, that we cast out the window, and they're probably the most important things that we need to stay on top of in the middle of that situation. Are you eating properly? Are you doing something to keep your body moving? Uh, are you finding a way to get outside, uh, as Pastor Rob likes to say, getting, taking in those blues and greens of nature? How's your sleep habits? I know when I get discouraged or, or get stressed, that, that tends to be the first thing to go in my life is, is my sleep habits. Most importantly, how's your devotional time? Are you spending time with God? Are you building your relationship with Him? 
We could go into a lot more detail on these things in particular, but uh, towards the beginning of the pandemic, Pastor Rob actually recorded a set of fireside chats about this. So if you want to go into more detail, I I would encourage you to go back and and check those out in our, our video archives. But these are vital things that will put you in a place where you can deal with discouragement. Don't neglect those things. Now, even with those things in place, even if you know you need to take action, even if you're in a good place to begin that fight, it's also possible that whatever is discouraging you has you in over your head. You're faced with something that that is a huge, big deal, and you need a hand, and you need help. There is no shame in finding help. There is no shame in recognizing you need to take action, but that you can't or you don't have the means to do so. There's no shame in asking for financial help. There's no shame in looking for medical help if you need it, for seeking a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, for setting up an appointment with one of the pastors. There's no shame in reaching out to your church family for assistance. That's what we're here for. That's part of our responsibility as a church is to be a part of each other's support. That's what we're here for. So the other thing that Nehemiah does here is he reminds the people why. It can be difficult to focus on a task if you forget why you're even doing it, right? If you experience discouragement, you may need to take a step back and remind yourself of why you're doing what you're doing. Even in the face of a physical threat, the people hesitated to build the very thing that would actually protect them from that threat. Nehemiah does this with the people. He reminds them who they're fighting for. He reminds them of their families. He reminds them of their God who was with them. You know, as we've walked through this pandemic together, I know that I've had to stop and reset myself on a lot of occasions. You know, back in March when, when we sat down with the elders and, and tried to decide how are we going to even make decisions in the middle of this? What's going to guide what we do we, we kind of established a biblical framework for how that was going to work. And so every time we had to make a decision, every time that something had to be canceled, even when it was kind of like, do we really need to cancel it? I mean, we could probably do it. We had to stop and remind ourselves, why are we doing this? Why are we, if we're even discussing this, why are we having this discussion? And why is that important? I think the same is true for for each COVID situation that you find yourself in. And when you find yourself in other discouraging situations, you have to remind yourself, why am I even doing this? What's important about this? Don't get lost in the rubble. Keep your eyes on the why. I know when it comes to the why of COVID measures that that it has been important and is making a difference. Uh, You know, we have been able to, to continue to gather and to do so safely because we've been remembering why. We're watching out for those others' needs above our own. We're honoring those in authority. We're valuing meeting together. Uh, and all of these things, you know, valuing uh, even it, it taking care of our household of faith. All of those things guide what we do and why we're doing it. So I just want to encourage you, you know, I know the masks aren't fun. Singing with the mask is, is, is just, it's just not great. I mean, we all know that, right? Um, but doing that is so important right now. And it enables us to continue meeting and to continue doing the things that we're doing. It really is making a difference. I know it doesn't feel like that all the time, but it really is doing that. Now, I saved the most important point for last. Nehemiah reminds us to remember the Lord who is great and awesome. 
So as vital as it is to take concerns seriously, to take an action against the problem, to remember why we do what we do, our ultimate source of encouragement, our ultimate ability to fight discouragement is found in our great God. Nehemiah made it very clear in the beginning of this project that God's hand was upon him. The Lord's favor was with him. That's why the king granted his request. That's why he was able to be in Jerusalem and start the project in the first place. And so the people recognized that God's hand was on Nehemiah. That's what motivated them to start in the first place. You know, this is a common theme through the Bible. We face tough times, impossible tasks, overwhelming odds, because God goes before us, and He walks with us through those things. You know, my favorite reminder of this uh, goes, if we go all the way to the end of the book in Revelation and look at Revelation chapter 1, John, the Apostle John, finds himself on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there. And he also is in the midst of rubble, doing hard labor. And I'm sure that he was in a position where he was extremely discouraged. But while he is in exile for his witness for Christ, he hears a voice that sounds like a trumpet, and this voice commands him to begin recording a special message for his churches in Asia. Uh, Revelation 1:12 through the first part of 17 says this, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So Jesus appears to John in all of his glory. Jesus, who came to earth as a baby in a manger, who died a criminal's death on the cross, who rose again and ascended into heaven, he reveals himself to John. But unlike when he walked the earth, Jesus reveals himself in all of his power and his splendor and his deity. White hair revealing his ultimate wisdom, penetrating eyes of fire ready to torch deceit, feet of bronze ready to crush those who opposed him, a voice that rivaled the mightiest waterfall. This is a pretty terrifying image, and John does what I would have done, fall at Jesus' feet as though dead. But I think it's amazing how Jesus does next, I think, is just incredible. Uh, the second part of verse 17, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, in all of his might and power, revealed as almighty and most holy and the God of the universe, reaches out and puts his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid. This is, this is Jesus. I mean, it, that's a terrifying image of Jesus, and yet what does he do? He just reaches down and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't be afraid. It's me. We walk the earth together. You're my friend. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Jesus was on his side. Jesus was there with John. You know, again, John is on Patmos, exiled, doing hard labor, and yet Jesus comes to him and says, don't be afraid. I'm, I'm with you in this. And John had endured beatings and had endured, we believe, even having been boiled in oil for his faith at that point. And yet here Jesus appears to him and says, don't be afraid. 
I believe that, that he has the same message for us today, that he is right here with us in whatever rubble that you are facing right now, whatever that may look like in your situation, whether it's a job loss, financial insecurity, family trouble, death, despair, whatever mess that you found yourself in. You know, as Nehemiah said, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the things he's carried you through so far. Remember him. When you experience discouragement, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Just as Jesus reached out to John, he is reaching out to you. If you're a believer listening to me today, don't forget this, that Jesus is on your side and he is here for you. Now, if you're listening to me today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ and never become a Christian, there's no time like the present. God created you to be in a relationship with him. Don't let another day go by without trusting him for salvation. If you need help today making that decision, if that's confusing, maybe this is the first you're ever hearing about that, we would love the opportunity to talk to you about it. Reach out to us. If you're here today, catch one of us afterwards. If you're joining us online, make sure that you contact us at the church office, call, email, whatever it takes. We want to talk to you about that. This is the most important decision that you'll ever make. And what better way to start off 2021 than by trusting Christ? You know, I think as, as we look back at Nehemiah, remember how much the people had accomplished when we learn of their discouragement? They, in 4.6, in Nehemiah and his crew had built the wall, connected it around the city, and had it up to halfway. So they were making really good progress when they began to experience discouragement. It's hard to know you're making progress when you're staring at the same section of wall every day, though. It's hard to know where you stand when all you're looking at is this just chunk of that wall. I'd like to think that even though we're not out of the pandemic woods just yet, I can't help but think that we're approaching the home stretch. At least I hope so. You know what? Even if I'm a hopeless optimist and I'm completely wrong, and a year from now we're looking at this recording online and going, <laughs> he was so naive. <laughs> I do know this, that the Lord is sovereign. He is great. He is awesome, just as Nehemiah reminded us. He knows what's coming. And he is going to walk with us through whatever comes our way in 2021. Whatever happens, he is going to be with us. You know, remember Jesus reaching out to John, telling him, don't fear, don't be afraid. And really, I, I just come back to the words of Isaiah 40 and 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lord, we know that you are great and awesome. We know that whatever comes at us in this new year, that you will be there with us. You will strengthen us. You will help us. We ask that you will encourage us when we are discouraged, that you will give us the strength to go on when we feel like we can't. Father, I pray for your great blessing upon our OBC family in this new year. I pray that you would continue to protect us and to help us to bring honor to your name as we continue to face this pandemic together. Thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.